Welcome to the first episode of the second season of Most Fashionable Crime. The theme of this season is House. I will be talking about the crimes and dramas of some of the most well-known fashion houses in the world. Today, we recognize the fashion capitals as New York, London, Milan, and Paris. Did you know that there were many attempts to replace Paris with Berlin? Welcome to Most Fashionable Crime, a fashion-related true crime podcast hosted by me, Taryn. If you want to be on trend, make sure to sign up for the newsletter, subscribe to the YouTube channel, and follow the podcast on Twitter at Most Fashionable and Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Most Fashionable Crime. There's also a discussion group on Facebook and a Reddit community, which are both linked in the notes. I want to give a special shout out to those that are forever trending, which are the supporters of this podcast. I appreciate you all so much. And there's a link in the notes if you would like to support too. Three ways to support Most Fashionable Crime are to share this podcast with anyone who may like it or may not know yet that they will like it. Leave a five-star rating and or a review if you are listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen, subscribe to the YouTube channel, and just listen and engage on social media. While you're listening right now, go ahead and share that you are to your Instagram story. In May of 1940, the German Wehrmacht, which was the Nazi German military, stormed into France. On June 10th, 1940, Italy also invaded France. This is referred to as the Battle of the Alps, and with this event, Italy declared war on both France and the United Kingdom. Four days later, with the French army left very weak, Paris fell to Nazi Germany. What does World War II have to do with fashion? A good bit, actually. During this time, there were, of course, more important matters than fashion. When you study fashion, you learn about the post-World War II new look that was created by Christian Dior, but not so much about what led up to it unless you do more digging. Speaking of the new look, it was announced on Friday, February 11th of this year, 2022, that Apple TV Plus announced a new drama series about just that. According to the Apple TV Plus press website, Apple TV Plus announced a series order for the new look, an epic thriller set against the World War II Nazi occupation of Paris when Coco Chanel's reign as the world's most famous fashion designer ends, and Christian Dior rises, helping return spirit and life to the world with his groundbreaking, iconic imprint of beauty and influence that will go on to define generations to come. If you're unfamiliar with the new look, I'll go into more detail later on in this episode. This episode is not about just one fashion house. It's about the attempt to dismantle Parisian fashion houses as a whole. Many of the namesakes behind the most well-known fashion couturiers got their start working under Lucien Lelong. In 1889, Lucien Lelong was born in Paris, France. He was born into fashion, so he probably figured he didn't need to study it. Instead, he remained in Paris and studied at the École des Hautes Etudes, Commerciales, ultimately earning a business degree. Lucien's parents, Arthur and Eleanor, owned and operated a small couture house. At just 18 years old, he designed his first pieces, and two years later, he redesigned his family's dress shop to resemble the inside of a jewelry box, decking it out in black curtains, carpeting, and furniture. According to Wikipedia, he opened his own fashion house in the early 1910s, but to me, it sounds like he operated out of his parents' shop. In January of 1913, his first designs were featured in Vogue magazine. The day Lucien was set to show his first collection, World War I popped off. 
Lucien was sent off to war and served in the French army as an intelligence officer until 1917. His time in the war ending one year shy of his end due to sustaining shrapnel wounds to the face. He was among the first to receive the Croix de Guerre, which translates to Cross Award for the bravery he exhibited during his time in service. He circled back to his fashion career, and I'm not sure if he took over his family's business completely, but by 1920, he had taken over the creative direction of his family's couture house and renamed it after himself. Around this time, another Parisian designer by the name of Coco, Chanel that is, was also establishing the strong fashion house. Coco did not have the same fashion upbringing as Lucien. She learned to sew while living at an orphanage and found work as a seamstress after she aged out. While Coco's creativity led to a more easy style addressing, Lucien had an upper hand with his business expertise and offered discounts to society women who were willing to be photographed while wearing his designs. Six years later in 1926, Lucien had grown his business to have a staff of 1,200 people. The House of Lalonde designs were all about fluidity, focusing on craftsmanship and fabrication. He wanted the true essence of the design to be noticed while in motion and not while still. Always the businessman and noticing the economical changes, in 1933 or 1934, he launched a successful lower price point ready-to-wear line called Edition. He was one of the first couturiers to do so. 1933 is also the year when Adolf Hitler was appointed Chancellor of Germany and soon transformed the German Republic into Nazi Germany and became its dictator. He sought to control everyone's daily life, which of course included how they dress. Hitler hated both French fashion and the ideal figure of the French woman, which was a slim boyish figure, which was popularized by Coco Chanel. Think of the 1920s flapper look. He also hated makeup, especially lipstick, because he was a vegetarian and animal products were used to make lipstick. In addition to hating makeup, he hated perfume, cigarettes, hair dye, and pants on women. I also read that he hated kept eyebrows, among other things. He, of course, preferred his ideal image of the Aryan woman. To perpetuate his ideal, he said there would be no more Paris models in June of 1933. The ideal Aryan woman had blonde hair and blue eyes, of course, long hair worn in a modest bun, and a full figure able to bear four Aryan children. This woman wore no makeup, perfume, or jewelry. She was to wear traditional German attire or folk costumes, such as the Dernal, which basically looks like a milkmaid outfit. With these ideals in mind, Hitler set out to strip the fashion capital title away from Paris and give it to Berlin. In 1927, the German Institute for Men's Fashion was founded. The purpose of the Institute was to promote men's fashion through services and distribution of all kinds of objects, as well as the execution of all related transactions. With the German men's fashion industry on lock, Hitler took it a step further to include the control of women's fashion. He was quoted as saying, Berlin women must become the best dressed in Europe. He had a plan for this. In 1933, from the German Institute for Men's Fashion emerged the Berlin-based Doges Monat in September of 1933, which is the German Fashion Institute. Along with that, the Association of Aryan Clothing Manufacturers also came into existence. This combination was intended to take out French fashion completely. The Aryan Clothing Manufacturers' labels were sewn into clothes, which guaranteed that the clothes had only been touched by Aryan hands. 
The clothing and textile industry in Berlin was dominated by Jewish people up until the Nazis gained control. Research done by Uwe Westfall found that in 1933 that there were almost 2,700 Jewish-owned clothing companies in Berlin, which made up 85% of the industry and the employment of 90,000 workers. The combination of the German Fashion Institute and the Association of Aryan Clothing Manufacturers continued to set out to rid French fashion influence from the fashion industry. The association manufactured journals, which you might recognize as those full gathered skirts with a tight waistband and other trotch, which are traditional clothes worn in German speaking countries. This was all a part of the Volkish movement, which influenced Nazism. Magna Goebbels was made the honorary president of the German Fashion Institute. She was the wife of Josef Goebbels, the Reich Minister of Propaganda for Nazi Germany. Her husband is the one responsible for portraying his close friend and confidant, Hitler, in a quote-unquote positive light. Both Magna and Emmy Goring shared the title of the First Lady of the First Reich because Hitler didn't have a wife because he considered himself married to the German people, so they shared hosting duties at events. The Gavels family was seen as the perfect German family, with Magna bearing six children in eight years. Despite this image, Josef Gavels tried to display, at times to the horror of their children, that was not the case at all. Both Magna and Yosef conducted various affairs during their marriage. Magna also had an affair during her previous marriage. She also had a son with her first husband, who were both a part of the Nazi party. Random but interesting, her first husband, Gunther Quant, had states and companies like BMW, Altana, and Damier Benz, which we know today as Mercedes-Benz Group. His descendants are some of the richest people in Germany, being that they are billionaires. Going back to Magna's Goebbels' role as honorary president of the German Fashion Institute, Magna only fit the image of a perfect Aryan woman partially. While Magna bore plenty of children and didn't have a boyish figure, she enjoyed wearing perfume by Elizabeth Arden and handmade Ferragamo shoes. She was also a chain smoker and wore couture garments made by Jewish designers. However, she was not an outlier. Other wives of high-ranking Nazis were also contradictions, as well as Hitler's mistress, Eva Braun. Magna publicly stated that the German woman of the future should be stylish, beautiful, and intelligent. She aimed to make the ideal woman a bit more fashion-forward, and her husband, who was the executor of German propaganda, was not going for this and fired his wife from her position later that year. One of the co-founders and head of the Association of Aryan Clothing Manufacturers, as well as the chairman of the Reich Association of Textile Retail, Herbert Tingelman was appointed president with the support of Josef Goebbels in 1934 or 1935. Tingelman was a merchant and an industrialist in the textile industry. In December of 1938, a German textile manufacturer by the name of Hans Kuhn replaced Tingelman. A year before, over in Paris, Lucien Lalonde was unanimously elected to be chairman of the Chambre Syndicale de la Couture, which translates to Trade Union Chamber of Couture. This is the organization that decides whether or not fashion houses are eligible to be considered a haute couture house. This is one of the three trade associations that make up the French Federation of Fashion and Ready-to-Wear Couturiers and Fashion Designers. Two years later, World War II began and Lalonde pretty much had to hold down French fashion as best as he could. Some of his counterparts left the country or closed their fashion houses. Italian fashion designer Elsa Scaparelli and Chicago, Illinois-born Maine Bacher both left for New York City, while French fashion designers like Madeleine Vionnet and Coco Chanel closed up their shops. Vionnet never reopened her shop and retired in 1940, while Chanel kept her perfume and cosmetics business running. 
In Berlin, the number of Jewish-owned fashion houses dwindled down from 2,700 to 150. Lucien Lalonde was assigned the task of defending French fashion from the Nazis. The Nazi plan was to move the ateliers from Paris to Austria or Germany. They also wanted to move the designers of the ateliers to Germany or Austria as well. There, they would train a new generation of dressmakers. Nazi officers showed up to the Chambre de la Sénégale de la Couture offices in July of 1940 for what they referred to as an inspection. On July 25th, Five days after their inspection, they broke into the offices and stole the archives. I suspect Joseph Goebbels was behind this, because while Hitler was behind the ideal German image, it was Goebbels' job to execute the German image. Ever the businessman, Lalonde broke down the risks and weaknesses of the Nazi plan to their officials. He pointed out the level of skill and training of the thousands of craftspeople that French fashion was dependent on. These are skills that can't just be taught to a new generation. It would take years, decades even, to develop that level of artistry. Lalonde also made the argument that each country should have the right to produce its own fashion in their own home country. He won the Nazis over with this appeal and they returned the Stalin archives. Another reason why it wouldn't work could have possibly been the fact that the wives of Nazi officers and French collaborators were being dressed by French fashion houses like Lulong and the Italian-born Nina Ritchie. With fabric rationing and shortages, this was very scandalous. The designers claimed that this was their way of preserving French fashion and Lulong is credited with keeping 12,000 workers from being deported during the Second World War. By 1941, he turned his focus back to his own fashion house. In the midst of all of this, Luang was actually training up a new generation of French designers. You may be familiar with the names of Christian Dior, Pierre Balmain, and Hubert de Givenchy. It is said that you can see the beginnings of Dior's famous new look through the last few years' work of Luang. When Dior left the army in 1942, he went to work for Luang and worked alongside the other primary designer, Pierre Balmain. This was not their first time working together. They worked together prior to the war for Robert Piguet. Givenchy also worked for Lelong in 1946. It seems as if he replaced Balmain as Pierre Balmain opened his house in 1945 when World War II ended that same year. Marionettes adorned with miniature looks from the 1945 fashion collections were sent overseas to the United States to restore faith in French fashion, and this plan worked. Lelong, in a way, passed off the torch to Christian Dior. Dior described Lalonde's role as a creative director. He stated he did not design himself, but worked through his designers. This is very common for creative directors, especially for people that have their own fashion brands or houses, but do not have formal training or training at all when it comes to designing clothes. In 1947, Dior showed his first collection, which was attended by Lalonde. This collection was coined the new look by Harper's Bazaar editor-in-chief, Carmel Snow. The curvy silhouettes highlighted with tops that resemble bustiers, lawn skirts with hip padding, and a cinched waist were seen as revolutionary in post-war fashion. When previously, clothes were designed to save on fabric, meaning shorter hemlines and boxier silhouettes. The new look restored Paris as the fashion center of the world. Lalonde's last collections had the feel of the new look showing Dior's influence. His very last collection was shown in 1948, and he retired months later due to health problems and shuttered his fashion house. Lalonde served as president of the Chambre de la Sénégale until 1945. Following the war, there were rumors of him being a French collaborator with the Nazis. 
He was acquitted, the judge ruling that he worked with the Nazis minimally only to preserve French culture and jobs within the fashion industry. The German Fashion Institute continued to exist in their original intended capacity until 1944. Germany did not become a fashion capital in the way the Nazis wanted. But as of today, they still have a presence in fashion, and there have been a number of influential German designers such as Karl Lagerfeld. While Lucien is not a designer you hear about often or even see the designs and work of, he played a huge role in fashion as we know it today. Thank you for listening to Most Fashionable Crime. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Head over to the YouTube channel to hear me talk more about Jewish designers and dressmakers and what their impact was during and after the war. Don't forget to sign up for the newsletter so you don't miss anything. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast, download episodes, and leave a five-star rating if you are listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. All of my sources are linked in the notes. In case you were wondering, this podcast was written, recorded, produced, and edited by me, Taryn. All the music you heard in this episode is from Epidemic Sound. 